the book of Micah. Just appreciate Pastor allowing me to come, and uh, good to see everyone. Thank you so much for for coming. Micah is right after Jonah and before Zephaniah. Or before Habakkuk, excuse me. Folks, it was a number of years ago that a Bible college um, had a course in, in uh, students uh, learning how to um, interpret Greek or to study Greek so that they can study the New Testament. And um, they had an assignment. The assignment was they were to um, translate the story of the Good Samaritan. Remember the Good Samaritan? Do you remember how a man went down and then he was beaten almost half dead? And uh, he's left on the road. And what happens is that one religious person sees him and just takes off. Another religious person sees him and takes off. And then there's a Samaritan who took the time to, to treat him and, and to help him. Well, these students were instructed to study the passage, to translate the passage. Uh, but there was three students out of that group that was really interested in the practical application of that passage. So this is what they did. The day they were, the students were to present their work, three of them decided that out of the three, one of them was going to pretend he was the victim in the story of the, of the Good Samaritan. Um, his, his shirt was torn, his pants were torn, ketchup on his face, mud on his face, and they had him strategically placed on the path where the students would go from their dormitory to the class. The other two students were watching to see what their fellow students would do. You want to guess, you want to take a guess what happened? All the students uh, that, that were ready to present their work in Greek and their translation and their study of the uh, story of the Good Samaritan, they all bypass the victim. Uh, some went around them. Some, uh, one guy went over them, I believe. Another person maybe said something, but none of them stopped. And when I think of that story, when I think of those students, it reminds me of the Jews at Micah's day. Because like those students, they knew the Bible really well. But they didn't show compassion on their fellow Jews, and they actually mistreated them. And that's one of the things we're going to be talking about today as we study. We're going to do a brief survey of, of the book of, of Micah. Just let me give you some background ab about the book. Because it is so similar to Isaiah, someone has written that Micah is an Isaiah in miniature. His name means who is like the Lord. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Micah, the Murashite, in the days of Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. He's from this town, Murasheth. The city was about 25 miles southwest of, of Jerusalem, near the borders of Judah and the Philistines, near Gath. Um, in 1 chapter 1, it says his ministry was during the reigns of three, these three kings. And in chapter 1, I believe it's verse 6, He's going to prophesy the destruction of the northern kingdom. 
And we know from a study that they were destroyed in 722 BC. So we know the book was written before those years, before 722 BC. What is the theme of the book of Micah? Micah preaches on the sins of Judah and the justice and righteousness of God. Micah is the prophet of the downtrodden and exploited people of Judea society. There's one word that appears three different times which, which shows the three major sections of the book. It is the word here. The word here. It is found in 1, 2, 3, 1, and 6, 1. But within each section of the word here, there is a section on judgment, and then there's a section on hope. It moves from doom to hope. Doomed because they have broken God's holy law, but hope because of God's unconditional love. One-third of the book deals with the sins of the people. One-third talks about the punishment God will deliver. And one-third promises hope for the future. And if you study the passage, if you study the book, it's almost like there's two different authors. It's almost like there's two different authors. He talks about the sins. He talks about the judgment. But he always ends in hope. He always ends in hope. Many years ago, an S-4 submarine was, was uh, hit by a, a ship off the coast of Massachusetts. It immediately sank to the bottom. There was no hope of those men surviving. It was called a prison house of death. But towards the end, a diver, when he was down there, heard some banging on the ship, on, on the submarine. And what it was is that they were trying to send Morris code. And this is what they said. Is dot, 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 there, dot, 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 hope, dot, 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 dot. And that is the cry of maybe you tonight. Maybe that's the cry of me. That because of the situation that we're going through, we're wondering, is there hope? Maybe that's the situation in your family's life or people that you know. Someone said this, we can live 40 days without food, eight days without water, four minutes without air, but only a few seconds without hope. And in Romans chapter 15, it, God descri- Paul describes God, and he describes himself as the God of hope. Like the God of hope. He talks about the God of hope. And he wants to give us hope tonight, and he gives hope to these people, and he wants to give you hope tonight, no matter what you and I are going through. He's, he is called the God of hope. Well, let's look at some important passages about this, this great book. Chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. It says there in verse 6, Therefore I will make Samaria as a heap of the field and as a plantings of the vineyard, and I will pour down the stones thereof into the valley, and I will discover the foundations thereof, and all the graven images thereof shall be beaten to pieces, and all the hires thereof shall be burned with the fire, and all the idols thereof will I lay desolate, for she gathered it of the hire of a harlot, and they shall return to the hire of a harlot. He, even though the prophecy is primarily written to Judah, the southern kingdom, here Micah predicts the destruction of the northern kingdom. Look at verse 7. It, it talks about destroying the idols. By completely destroying the idols, God shows his superiority over them. But idols aren't listed, aren't limited to the Old Testament. At the end of a very pointed book, 1 John chapter 5, verse 21, John says these words, Little children, 
Keep yourselves from idols. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Now, folks, what are idols? What are idols in our lives? An idol is anything or anyone that comes before God. An idol is anything or anyone that comes before God. And nothing is to, become, not, nothing is to come remotely close to our love relationship with God. And God says, keep them out. Remove them from your life. I am a jealous God, and I don't want anything or anyone to come close to me, to my love to, to me. Look also at chapter 1, verse 8. Therefore I will wail and howl. I will go stripped and naked. I will make wailings like the dragons and mourning as the owls. The prophet is talking about himself. The, um, the prophet laments the coming judgment. The wailing, the howling, and being naked are all signs of deep mourning. And he is mourning over the fact that his people are about to be judged. He is mourning over the fact that God is going to judge his people. Folks, do we ever do that? Do we ever do that? Um, it's only natural after we're saved to get angry at sin. It's only natural. We are, we are made in the image of God. Um, but do we ever cry? When's the last time we cried over those people and the, and the mistakes they make and and the, 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 the sins that's wrecking their lives and it's going to send them to eternity? Do we, ever, do we ever grieve over what they're doing? Do we, instead of being angry, and we, and we should, we should, but do we ever go beyond that to grieving and to hurting and to, and, and, and to crying over their what's going to happen to them. And when we do that, we're just like Jesus. When we do that, we're just like Jesus. In Luke chapter 19, verses 41 to 44, Jesus, the epitome of righteousness and judgment, the, the man who hates sin, the God-man who hates sin, he weeps. He cries over Jerusalem because he knows what's going to happen to them. So yes, there needs to be anger. Yes, we should be upset over sin. But there also needs to be some tears because of what's going to happen to them. Chapter 1, verse 9. He says, For her wound is incurable, for he has come unto Judah. He has come unto the gate of my people, even to Jerusalem. He's talking about the upcoming and inevitable judgment of Judah, the southern kingdom. And folks, we need to warn people of the judgment that is coming. It is inevitable. It is inevitable, inevitable that judgment is coming and there is a hell for those who don't know him and we need to warn them. We need to warn people of the upcoming judgment. D.L. Moody learned the wrong way. Learn about this the wrong way. Someone said this. D.L. Moody made a mistake on October 8, 1871. He preached in his largest audience he, he preached to his largest audience in Chicago. The text had been, what will you do with Christ who is called the Christ? What will you do with Jesus who is called the Christ? He said something he had never said before and frankly never said again. He was fatigued and because of that he said to the audience um, after he presented the gospel, he said, now I'm going to give you a week to think that over. And when we come together again, you will have opportunity to respond. Then Iris Hankey came and began to sing. 
Even before he finished the song, you could hear the, the blare of the siren in the streets of Chicago as the great fire broke out and left over 100,000 homeless. Hundreds of people died in that fire, and D.L. Moody rose to that occasion a few months later and said, I would rather give my right arm before I would give an audience another week to think over the message of the gospel. Some who had heard that night died in the fire. And so he learned a mistake that night, and of course he learned quickly, and from what we gather, he never did that again. But there, there's a warning that we need to give. That judgment is coming, and we need to tell people about that. We need to warn people about that. Look at chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Woe to them that devise iniquity and work evil upon their beds. When the morning is light, they practice it because it is, the, because it is in the power of their hand. And they covet fields, and they take them by violence and houses, and take them away so they oppress a man and his house, even a man and his heritage. Remember I began the message by saying that, that these people, one of the reasons for the judgment is the way that they were treating their fellow Jews. They not only were not just com- not compassionate, but they actually were doing some very evil things to their fellow Jews. Um, and... Um, where chapter 1 dealt with Judah's sin against God, chapter 2 deals with their sins against their fellow man. At nighttime, according to verse 1, the leaders would devise evil plans in their hearts, and during the day they would carry them out. And they committed the sin of covetousness. They committed the sin of covetousness, coveting other man's uh, property and farms and lands. If you read the Old Testament, the, the, the land was to be kept. The land was to be kept, but because of the covetousness of these leaders, they were taking other people's lands. Look also at chapter 2, verse 11. If a man walking in the spirit and falsehood do lie, saying, I will prophesy unto thee of wine and of strong drink, he shall be even the prophet of this, of, of this, of this people. Where chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 is talking about the leaders. Chapter 2, verse 11 is talking about the false prophets. This is before the judgment is coming. And Micah is talking about these false prophets. Um, The people, someone said, the people accepted any prophet who would tailor their message to their greed, wealth, and prosperity. Kind of sounds like 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4 which says, right before Paul dies in the last chapter of his life, he says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers, having itchy ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth, and shall be turned into fables. And you know what it's talking about. Churches will hire pastors who will preach what they want to hear. Um, they, they will preach... They will not preach on sin or repentance, just messages that will make the people feel good about themselves. And that's exactly what was going on there. A preacher, before he became a preacher, when he was in the military, went to a church right before he was about to be discharged in, in, in California. And he went to this massive church, this big church, and when he went to the foyer, there were pictures all along the foyer wall. There was a picture of Gandhi and Lincoln and Jesus and 
maybe one was Socrates, and the president at that time was President Eisenhower. Then with these pictures were the words which said, you are all sons of God, Galatians chapter 3, verse 26, but they omitted the entire passage. The passage says, you are all the sons of God by faith in Christ Jesus, but they omitted those words. And that's what false prophets do. That's what false teachers do. That's what false preachers do. They don't preach the whole counsel of God. They don't preach every word. They just preach what people want to hear. And that's exactly what was going on in Micah's day. Then look at chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. Chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. The preceding chapter talks about impending judgment. Now he talks about the future millennial reign of Christ. Look at chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. But in the last days it shall come to pass that the mountains of the house of the Lord shall be established in the top of the mountains, and it shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow unto it. And many nations shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, and to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and, he, and we will walk in his paths, for the law shall go forth of Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge among many people and rebuke strong nations afar off. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up a sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Um, in verse 2, many people will come from all around the world to worship the Lord in Jerusalem. And in verse 3, it says they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Remember I began by saying in the background of the message that, that Micah is called a miniature Isaiah. And you're probably familiar from the passage from Isaiah. This is also quoted in Isaiah 2, 4. Uh, this is what will happen during the millennium. Do you remember in the, in, in the 1990s there was the L.A. riots. Do you remember the L.A. riots? Do you remember that? Do you remember what happened or how it, how it started? It started from uh, the police arresting a man, uh, Rodney King, and there was abuse. Do you remember that? But do you remember what Rodney King said? Do you remember his famous statement? Rodney King said, um, why can't we all get together? Or why can't we all get along? Why can't we all get along? And uh, I know the reason why we all can't get along. It's because of me. It's because of me. It's because I am selfish. I am self-centered. I am self-absorbed. And the truth is, so, so are all of us. So there is no possible way that we can all get together and, 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 and everyone get together. It's because we are sinners. Um, did you know from the year 1500 B.C. to 1860 A.D., there were more than eight thousand treaties of peace meant to remain in force forever but they were concluded and the average time the average time span of all those treaties were two years there's never going to be a time when we're all going to get together until Christ comes back because when Christ comes back he will rule with a rod of iron and he will establish peace the prince of peace will establish peace but it will never happen until he comes back in the millennium. Chapter 5, verse 2, is a familiar passage. 
But thou, Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth have been from old, from everlasting. The amazing thing about the word of God is prophecy. 700 years before Christ is born, Micah gives this prophecy, and it's so specific because he uses the word Bethlehem Ephrata. And maybe you already know this, but the reason why he says that is because there's two Bethlehems. There's one in Galilee, and there's one in Judah. And this is the, the one that's talking about, Bethlehem Ephrata. 700 years before Christ was born, God uses Micah to predict exactly where the Messiah would, would be born. And it says his goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. It is speaking of Christ's deity. It's speaking of his eternality. That the second person of the Trinity always existed. The Bible in Hebrews 1, John 1, and also Colossians 1 say that, show that Christ was part of creating the world. We see, his, we, we see him in the Theophanies and the Christophanies. We see him even before uh, the birth of Christ. The second person of the, uh, of the Trinity always existed, but he came into time and space in the person of Jesus Christ. But it's amazing prophecy. And then look at 6.8. Maybe you've heard this verse too, another familiar verse. 6.8. He has shown thee, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of thee but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. He's basically saying, you should have known this. You should have known this from passages like Deuteronomy 10, 12, and 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22. You should have already known this. I have already shown you what I require. And what does God require here? What does God want more than anything else? He wants a love relationship that when we have a love relationship with him, a vibrant love relationship with him, it will result in us treating people fairly and even showing mercy to them. And he said, you should have known that. You should have known that. I showed you that in Deuteronomy. I showed you that in First Samuel. And of course, Jesus talks about that. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself, that when I have a vibrant relationship with him, it will result in me treating people right and fairly and with mercy. My heart can be so deceitful. My heart can be so wicked that I can think just like they did, that because I'm in an organization, because I'm in a building, because I belong to some group, that that makes me right with God. But God never says that. God is always about the heart. God is always about the heart. Do you remember Samuel? Do you remember Samuel and Saul? Do you remember that story? God tells Saul, and, and he uses Samuel to tell Saul in 1 Samuel 15 to wipe out the Amalekites. And do you remember what Saul did? He kept King Agag alive, and he spared some of the, um, some of the cattle. And if you read the passage, you know what Saul does? He actually builds a monument to himself. And then Samuel comes to him and he says, I have done what the Lord commanded. And then Samuel says, why do I hear, why do I hear the, the animals? Why do I hear the animals? And, and Samuel says to him, to obey is better than sacrifice. To obey is better 
than sacrifice. And my heart can be so deceiving in the sense that I can think that because I belong to, because I am in a place or I am involved in an organization, that, that all, that's all God wants. And that's what they thought. That's what they thought. They thought that because they were part of the group, that that made them right with God. But God is always about the heart. God is always about the heart. He's looking into our heart. That's why Proverbs says, my son, give me your heart. And when our heart is right, when we have a vibrant relationship with the Lord, it will always result in a lover relationship with other people. That God is about the heart. And tonight I have to ask myself, how's my heart? How's my heart today? Do I, do I have a, a love relationship with him? Do I love other people? Chapter 7, chapter 7, verse 6. It says, For the son dishonoreth the father, the daughter riseth up against her mother, the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, man's enemies are the men of his own house. This is a familiar passage. It, it, it comes from Matthew chapter 10, or Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 to 36, uh, quotes this passage. I remember when my brother, I remember when either he was reading the Bible before he got saved, or it was when he initially got saved, he looked at this passage, and he said, I don't understand this. I don't, I don't understand this. You know, uh, why does Jesus bring a sword? Why does... Why does Jesus bring a sword? Why does the Prince of Peace bring a sword? He sometimes does, does that, doesn't he? He, so, he sometimes does that when, when a person in a family from an unsaved family gets saved and, and um, there's a sword there. It happened to me. That's my testimony. I got saved at a religious, from a religious family and um, man, there was a sword there. <laughs> there, were, there was a sword there. And um, I can remember my parents saying to me that, threatening to me that if you go witness to your uncle, you got to get out of here. And I remember my dad one time saying to me, you don't know how you disappointed my mom and dad by, living, by leaving our church, by leaving our denomination. And there was a sword in our family. And the Lord allows it at times just to see whether or not we'll love him more than we'll love our family. In my case, the Lord was gracious and over the years, there was understanding, and I believe that my mom and dad, they did make professions of faith the last year of their lives. But um, Jesus allows us to go through these things. He does bring a sword, sometimes in our relationships. And then we're almost done. Look at chapter 7, verse eight, 18. Chapter 7, verse 18. He says, Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever because he delighteth in mercy. It's a rhetorical question that has an obvious answer. That, that, that has an obvious answer. There is no one. There is no one like him that can actually pardon iniquity and pass by the transgression. He doesn't keep his anger forever. And he... He actually, he doesn't show mercy. He delights in mercy. Look at, keep your place there. Look at Psalm, look at the Psalm, Psalm 77. Look at the rhetorical questions that, that are asked about God. Psalm 77, verse 13. Psalm 77, verse 13. 
it says in verse 13 of Psalm 77, Thy way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Who is so great a God as our God? Another, another rhetorical question that has an, an obvious answer. There is no God as great as our God. Look at Psalm um, 89, Psalm 89, Psalm 89, verse 8. Psalm 89, verse 8. O Lord God of hosts, who is a strong Lord like unto thee, or to thy faithfulness round about thee. And so again, it's a rhetorical question that has an obvious answer that there is no God like thee. It was about three weeks ago that I went to a men's retreat. And the preacher was speaking on the incomparability of God. What does that mean? The incomparability of God. It's the idea of what we've talked about. It it means that there is no one like God. There is no one like God. And what the preacher was saying is that a lot of times we get in trouble because our focus is on the world, our country. If we look at the world, we're going to get discouraged. If we look at our country, we're going to get discouraged. If we look at ourselves, uh, we're going to get discouraged. But our focus needs to be on God. And these passages talk about the fact there is no one like God. He quoted a book that was written years ago, Your God is Too Small. He also said, we will never arise above our thoughts of God. And the reason why I don't have victory at times, and the reason why that that maybe I'm not thriving in my Christian life, because my eyes are everywhere but him. They're everywhere but him. And he went through four different sessions on the passage. Remember Isaiah 40? Isaiah 40, an unbelievable passage. And he said that God is incomparable in his wisdom, in his sovereignty, and his power, that there's no one like God. There is no one like God. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 12, it says, The nations are but a drop in a bucket. And what the passage is saying is that you have a bucket full of water. You have a bucket full of water. And it says the nations, it is plural, it is plural. You have a bucket full of water, and the nations are just a drop from that bucket full of water. The nations. And so my emphasis needs to be on a God like that. That My God is so powerful that the nations are just as a drop in a bucket. And guys, that's where the victory comes. The victory comes not in thinking of the world and our country or ourselves. The victory comes on focusing on him and how great he is and how powerful he is. What's that quote again? We will never arise above our thoughts of God. What is our image of God? What is our image of God? He is an all-powerful God. There is no one like him. He is that great. And the problems in my life, in your life, the truth truth is, is is nothing to him. I know they seem overwhelming, but they're really nothing to him. He's that kind of God. Look at Psalm, oh, excuse me, Micah seven nineteen. He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities. And thou will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Um, I think the uh, deepest part of the, uh, 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 the oceans is um, is in the Pacific Ocean, Marana Trench. I think that's how you pronounce it. I think it's like seven miles, what little I know. It goes down, and God 
gives us a graphic picture that that's how far he's buried your sins and my sins into the depths of the sea. That's, that's how far he's done that. And Isaiah, Psalm 103, verse 12 says, he has infinitely removed our sins. Isaiah 118 says he, he's completely cleansed us from the stain of our sins. Isaiah 38, 17 says he throws our sins behind his back. Jeremiah 31, verse 34 says he remembers our sins no more. And maybe some of you have the same problem that I do, that I am remembering things that he's already forgot. I am remembering sins that he's already forgot. He doesn't, he doesn't remember them. He doesn't know them. He has forgiven them. He has, he, has, he has cast them into the depths of the sea. He's removed them as far as the east is, is from the west. He has thrown our sins behind, the back, from behind his back. Someone asked Abraham Lincoln right before he died, how are you going to treat the South when they are returned to the Union? You know what he said? I will treat them as if they have never been away. I will treat them as if they had never been away. It's kind of like our relationship with Christ. In Romans chapter one, verse Romans chapter five, verse one, it says, Therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God. The word justification means to be declared righteous. It means to be declared righteous, that God sees you and I as perfectly righteous. An application of this verse is that because we're justified, God sees us not only as if we've done nothing wrong, but as if we've done everything right. Did you realize that? Do you realize who you are in Christ? Do you realize what he's done that we're justified. I'm going to make a statement, and I, I, please, if you could listen to every word, because you may think that I'm deep, I've been uh, deep heresy here, but just listen to me for a second. We're talking about we're talking about who we are in Christ, our position in Christ. We get to heaven, and um, Christ, our Advocate, is right next to us. Okay, and. God knows my sins, and I, knows, I know my sins. And maybe the accuser of the brethren would say, look at Ted. Look at all his sins. Look how wicked and, and unrighteous he is. Father, look, you know, God, look how wicked Ted is. And then Jesus says, well, I've died for Ted. I've died for Ted. Ted, um, Ted has been forgiven by me, Father, and he is completely forgiven. As a matter of fact, he is in me. Here's the question I want to ask you. When the Father looks at me over here and Christ over here, over here, who is more righteous? Who is more righteous? Positionally, positionally, who is more righteous? Who is more righteous? Obviously, Christ is more righteous than I am. But remember, who, who are you? You're in Christ. So God sees us through Christ-colored eyes. We are forgiven. We are cleansed. We are forgiven. He sees us in Christ. And so we are forgiven. It's an amazing thing that um, we, are, we, we, we are forgiven. We are cleansed. Um, we are in Christ. Of course, I could never be as righteous as, as Christ. But in Christ, God sees me through Christ-colored eyes. And I am forgiven. I am justified. That's what the word means. I am declared righteous. God sees me as righteous. 
and he sees you as righteous. That's what the word means. All right. Chapter 7, verse 20. Chapter 7, verse 20. Thou will perform the truth to Jacob and the mercy to Abraham, which thou hast sworn unto our fathers from the days of old. Um, notice that it says, Thou will perform the truth to Abraham. I've been going through the minor prophets. And when you go through like Hosea and Joel and all these books, it seems like they always end with the promise of hope that God is going to keep his promise to Israel. That God is going to keep his promise to Israel. And, um, you know, um, he will. God will. God's, God's plan from Genesis chapter 12 is that God's special people, God's chosen people are the Jews, and he will keep the promises that he made. But the truth is he also keeps promises to us. He also keeps promises to us. In Jude 24, he says that God will keep us from falling. Also in 1 Peter chapter 1, he says that we are kept by the power of God. We are kept by the power of God. And what happens is that when you know that when you and I know that we're secure, when we know that we are eternally secure, it frees us. It frees us to be the person that God wants us to be. Sometimes people think that they can lose their salvation. And so what they usually do is that they serve out of fear. But when you know that you're secure in Christ, you not only serve him out of fear, and you should, but you also fear him out of love. That, that you serve him out of love. You serve him out of love. It frees you to be the person that God wants you to be. It actually makes you more productive, just like the workers at the Golden Gate Bridge. Did you ever hear that story? The Golden Gate Bridge was completed in 1937 at a cost of $77 It was built in two stages, the first one slowly, the second one rapidly. In the first stage, 23 men died or fell to their death. And so what happened is that the people got discouraged. And then finally, someone had the great idea of, of getting a net. And so they, built, uh, they got a net, which, which, which was at that time $100,000. And what happened was that when they got that net, 10 people fell, but they were saved. And you know what happened? Work, work production went up 25% because they knew they were secure. They knew that they, were, that they were safe. And that's the way it is in our Christian life. When you know who you are in Christ, when you know who you are in Christ, when you know that you are eternally secure, you serve, you serve him not only out of fear, but you serve him out of love. And uh, we become effective, productive Christians when we serve, when we realize that we're secure in him. Let's bow in prayer. Father, I just pray that um, somehow you would take these words and, and somehow use it. Father, I just... Um, I thank you that every word of God is pure and it's right and it's inspired. It is inerrant. And I thank you for Micah, Lord. I just thank you that even though he gave some hard words, he also gave hope. And I don't know um, anyone listening tonight, Lord, I just pray that, that uh, no matter what they're going through, you would give them hope, Lord. That the God of hope would uh, give them hope, that they would abound in hope. That they would abound in hope and you would give them the courage to go on. Please give them the courage to go on knowing um, just how good and how kind you are. In Jesus' name, amen.